Hi there, welcome along to another episode of the High Performance Podcast. 1.1 million people have downloaded episodes of this podcast in the last 30 days and I can't thank you enough for being one of those people. It makes a huge difference to the work that we do. It opens us up to new guests, new opportunities, new ways of reaching you and if you can rate and review this podcast or share it on your social media accounts, it just moves the dial for us as well. And today I'm so pleased and proud to welcome to the High Performance Podcast, a Formula One world champion. Formula One is, is, a, is a mental game. Pretty much every guy on the grid is super talented. Yeah. It's just if their head is in the right space. You know, the, the headlines are, uh, are always tough for, uh, for a sportsman to read. And nobody takes credit for the headline. You know, they'll take credit for the article and they'll say, oh, the, the headline wasn't me. Yeah, yeah. And the headlines are always the one that hit you the hardest when it's negative. Dave Richards gave me the opportunity to go to VAR and it was the best move of my life. That team walked in, you know, high-fiving everyone on the way in. They were, they were really happy for me to be there and, you know, to feel wanted was immediately, it was a, a complete switch for me. Ah, oh, such a good episode this with Jensen Button and... One of the really interesting things is that for the very first time, this is recorded in front of a live audience. We were at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. Um, we were working with Lotus, who, as you know, are proud partners of ours on the High Performance Podcast. And they're working with Jensen, and it just worked out nicely for him to come and be on the podcast. So what I want you to do, I want you to listen to this, and then I want you to ping me a message. Just let me know, would you like us to bring the High Performance Podcast on the road? If we set up a tour, if we invited some cool guests, if we found some wicked venues, if we decided to come and get a bit closer to you, our wonderful listeners and our brilliant community, would you turn up? Would you be there for us? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. This episode of the High Performance Podcast comes next. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Before we get going, a big shout out to our founding partners, Lotus Cars. They've been with High Performance from the very start, and I'm pleased to say they are not going anywhere. And they are so busy at the moment doing so many different high performance projects. When you think about it, they're working with Jensen Button on not just his Extreme E project, but also on his Radford Cars project as well. They are creating the Lotus Amira, which is their wonderful new road car, which will be out in 2022. You can find out more details about that at lotuscars.com. They've also built the Avaya all-electric hypercar. If you've got a spare couple of million quid, feel free to buy yourself one. And if you're really feeling generous, you can buy me one as well if you like. But as well as all that, their big project this summer has been creating the bikes that Team GB was so successful on out at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. And I just love the fact that as a small company based here in Norfolk, building cars in the way that they always have, I just love the fact that they're looking for ways to work with other high-performance people in all different genres and all different areas. I I think they're such a brilliant company. Um, And I can't thank you enough for being part of the high-performance podcast, Lotus Cars. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, first of all, for joining us here at Goodwill on a sadly rather rainy weekend, but a good weekend all the same. Um, We always start our conversations in the same way on high-performance, which is, for you... What represents high performance? So you always start it deeping, deep and meaningful. Yeah, always. That's where I we like go. That. As we have a screaming racing car going by yeah. behind. It's a really good question. What is high performance? I have a, a very different view because I've been around different sports. Um, but for me in, in motor racing, it was always trying to find the edge. My natural ability was good when it came to driving, but it probably wasn't as good as some. Um, So for me, high performance, it was about fine-tuning myself, finding a way to have a better performance than others. So I personally feel that I worked harder than a lot of guys did in in motor racing and in Formula One. I don't have the God-given talent of a Lewis Hamilton, for example, but I could beat him because I would work in certain areas, whether it was set up with the car, the engineering side of things, the strategy, many different areas I would perform better because I worked harder. And that was my strength. I would spend a lot of time with the team developing the car, but also getting the team behind me as an individual to support me more in the team. Um, And you could say that's dirty tactics, but it's not. It's sport. You do whatever you can to win uh, within the regulations. Um, So for me, high performance was extracting the maximum out of me every way possible. And whether that was my fitness level, my nutrition, um, obviously learning as much as I could in terms of driver ability, but also the engineering side of, mm. of Formula One. So it was perfecting the areas I knew I could make myself better in, whereas the God-given talent, I couldn't. That is what you're given. It also sounds as though you understood the power of communication as well, because I think, you know, I worked alongside you for a long time and I would just watch the driving and comment on the driving. Things like working with the engineers, working with the team to understand them, to get them to understand you and be on side, if you like. Where did you develop those skills and what did you find was effective when you went into a new team to make that team work for you? My dad. Really? <laughs> was it? It was, it was the team of people that I had around me, you know, lucky to have on side. We came into McLaren, for example, after winning the World Championship in 2009. People said it was the craziest move to move to McLaren alongside Lewis Hamilton. And even Ross Braun said that. You know, I, I told 
the team that I was leaving at the end of 2009. I spoke to Nick Fry, who basically just shouted at me. He was one of the bosses alongside Ross Braun at the time. And I, I remember going in his office and telling him I was leaving. Yeah. And he just shouted at me. No. And, I, and I basically started laughing. <laughs> um, because it was a un really uncomfortable situation. I kind of felt for him. For how aggressive he was. And he just looked at me and said, why are you laughing at me? And wow. It was the situation. It just, I, what I didn't expect. And I told Ross, and uh, he was very friendly, and he said, I think you're making a big mistake going up alongside Lewis. I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know, There's a vote of confidence for you. What a positive you. energy yeah. here I'm getting. Uh, but I was leaving. But it, it happens. I didn't have a contract for the next year. It just didn't feel like the place for me. Going to McLaren was. And... Uh, I remember walking into McLaren and the first thing I said was, before I met anyone, I spoke to Martin Wimarsh, I spoke to Ron Dennis, and I said, my first question is, is this Lewis's team? You know, am I going to have equal treatment here? Because if I'm not, I don't want to be here. Yeah. And uh, they said, yes, everything will be 100% equal between both of the drivers. And I was like, right, now I can start. And then I walked in, met everyone, uh, and got a pretty good rapport with the team very, very quickly. And uh, my dad would walk in and, uh, you know, my dad was always in the background, as you know, and he would speak to the engineers and, you know, he'd be, uh, the races, he'd be like, good job, guys, you're doing a fantastic job, thanks for looking after my son, now don't mess it up. Is that right? I was going to say a bad word then, but don't mess it up, he would say it in a different way than yeah. that. But, uh, and you think that had an impact? Definitely, it, you know, it's, it was quite a cold atmosphere um, and he made it a lot more friendly yeah. um, and, you know, my manager, Richard, was great, my uh, physio Mikey Muscles, my PR man James Williamson, and I think it just it made everyone a bit more relaxed in the team. Um, and drivers weren't these alien people that you can't talk to within a team. You know, I made sure that I spent time with the mechanics, time with the engineers, and really got them on side so they would listen to, to what I needed to do with the car to make it work for me. And that's why, in those mixed conditions, I could drive it well because I developed the car around myself. So would you tell us a little bit about your father and his influence on Jensen and also as well contrast it with the role of your mum? It seems quite of a yin and yang approach to parenting. Well, they're very yin and yang as people. I don't understand how they were ever together, my parents. But um, they weren't together very long after they had me. My parents split up when I was seven and I started racing when I was eight. So it's through my parents splitting up that I started racing because my father had me on the weekends and as a kid that wasn't really into ball sports... He's like, what am I going to do with him? Um, so he bought me a go-kart. Um, used all the money he had in his bank account for a go-kart and we'd go racing on the weekends. But my dad was always there for me when it came to racing and he would support me all the way, but he wasn't pushy. I hate that when you see dads in karting pushing their kids because it makes you not want to do it. Yeah. You know, he would always say if it's, you know, we had a bad weekend, which we would have had, especially when I turn into a teenager, you know, you suddenly find the opposite sex attractive and, uh, and racing kind of is on the back burner a little bit. And he would turn around to me and say, Jensen, if you're not into it right now, he said, we can take a break. Or if you want to stop, stop. And what was your reaction when he, when he would say something like that to you? It'd make me want to work harder, it, you know. And uh, there was one, one moment that, uh, I get emotional probably saying it, but... Uh, I was karting and it was, yeah, I was 12, 13 and had a really bad weekend. We're racing up in Scotland, karting, and uh, I think I finished last in every race. And I'd gone from winning the previous season to finishing last. And on the way home, I was just, he thought I was asleep in the back and he was talking to my stepmom. And he, she, he said to her, I don't think he's got it. And uh, that was like, oh, you know, that, that hurt. And I, I didn't tell him that I knew until I won the world championship. 
Uh, and what was his yeah. reaction then? He started crying. Oh, <laughs> and do you think that he knew you were hearing him or he, he sort of understood you enough to know the right things to say to push your buttons? He did, but he was a very caring guy. So, you know, he would never say anything to try and sway what I was feeling. Yeah. No. Uh, to, to, to benefit him, if you like. He, he would never do that. So. And what about the role of your mother then? What did she offer you that you were still using when you were becoming a world champion? Well, when, when I started racing, it's when my parents split up and they didn't get on at all. They hated each other, um, which, which obviously was a tricky one for me because I wanted to go driving go-karts the whole time as a kid. Um, so she didn't like that I was driving karts. Uh, and I get it, you know, as a, for a mum, it's a baby boy, as the only boy in the family, got three sisters. And uh, I was away with my dad having fun, but also she, she didn't really understand it. So she's like, it's, it's really dangerous. He could hurt himself. And, and it is, you know, it is, has yeah. got danger attached to it. So I kind of get it. And she tried to stop me racing initially. And then she saw, saw how much I loved it and how well I was doing. And then I went to Europe and raced. And she was massively supportive. And she actually, you know, apologized for me for being the way that she was. And she's been so supportive. She hasn't been at all the races, my F1 races, like my dad was. And one of the reasons was because they didn't get on and it, it just didn't work for me having them both there. You know, I, I didn't want to be worrying about how my mum was feeling about my dad being there and vice versa. So because my dad got me into racing, he was always the one at the races. Yeah. And, uh, but my mum watched every single race. You know, she's even texting me now saying, when are you going up the hill next? Because nice. she's watching it on TV and... You know, I don't see my mum as often as I would like because COVID restrictions and I live in America. But she's, she's, she's texting me the whole time. When are you, when are you next on TV? When are you next on, uh, you know, covering, Proud for, covering Formula oh, One yeah. or when you're driving a car up the hill? It's just, it's mega that she's still like that. So um, she's been massively supportive. And I think, I think for my parents, obviously my dad wasn't around anymore when uh, I retired from F1. But I think it really hit my mum when I wasn't racing in F1 because she loved that. And I think if my dad was around, I think it would have hit him really hard when I retired from F1 because that was his life. So what lessons did they teach you that you would pass on to your children now then? I think the supportive role, but not being pushy, you know, with, with my dad. Even the year that I won the world championship, he'd be in the back of the garage and uh, he would wait to be spoken to, if you like. You know, if I had an issue or I was happy, I would walk up to him and then I would talk to him and then he would give me his opinion. Mm. He would never throw it at me because he knew I knew what I was doing. Um, he was very supportive, but in a quiet way, in a, in a very calm manner. The only time he got angry with me was 2013. Uh, I uh, broke my hand, which not many people know, um, punching a drum in a shop bar in Tokyo. Uh, yes. What uh, did the drum do that was so offensive? To well, basically, we, we flew from Korea, yeah. which was always an interesting weekend. Uh, flew to Japan, all the, a lot of the drivers together, there was 12 of us in total, went to this shop bar. And it was the weekend before the Japanese Grand Prix, so we all went out, had a few drinks. And to get everyone around in the bar, um, you hit this drum with a drumstick, and the drumstick was missing. So I punched the drum, which was fine, because <laughs> it moved out of the way. And then Felipe Massa grabbed hold of the drum and said, punch it again. And I did, and uh, went over on my left knuckle, because I didn't know what I was doing, and, uh, and broke my hand. And DC was there. And, and I, mean, I mean, DC couldn't really see at that point. <laughs> but, uh, but he still looked at me and went, you've broken it, haven't you? And he knew immediately, and I was like, yeah. And it got me ice, and went to the doctors the next day, and I'd broken my hand. And they said, you've got you to strap it up. We've got to put a cast on it. So I'm driving a Formula One car in three days. I can't do that. They said, well, it's going to hurt a lot then. 
Um, and uh, I eventually raced in Japan. Uh, the team wanted to swap me out and put the, the young gun in, which was, was it Kevin Magnuson? Okay, Magnuson yeah. They wanted to put him in the car so they could compare him and Checo to see who would be in the car the next year. And I was like, no, I'm not, not getting out of the car. So I drove and I basically had to strap my hand to the steering wheel to drive. That's the only time he got angry at me when I told him I broke my hand. He said a really bad word to me, which I'm not going to mention now. Do not now. repeat that. Well, on a podcast, we can, right? But there's people here, it's so we can't. A problem. But uh, he was really angry. It's the only time in my racing career he's been angry with me, just because of my stupidity. But um, getting back to your, your question, I think it's the nurturing. And I see it as a, as a father with my kids. I want to nurture them, and I don't want to push them in any direction if my son or my daughter want to race cars or go-karts i'm going to let them but i'm not going to push them to do that at all but uh, i have a feeling my son hendrix is going to want to because he all day long he plays with cars right. you know and he carries cars around with him so it looks like he's going to be a car collector which is going to be expensive but uh, if he wants to do it he wants to do it and i'll let him but i think i'm lucky because he's going to be your size is he and we've all seen you drive cars very fast very impressive yeah. Let's talk about failure and allowing your kids to fail because I think one of the big issues these days is like this helicopter parenting, hovering around your kids all the time, smoothing the path in front of them, not allowing them to fail and then they get to an age and they don't have the resilience because they've never had to fail before. Loads of parents listen to this podcast. So, you know, you've gone through a whole life of failure. That's the reality of an elite sports person, right? Regular failure and then the odd success. What are you going to be teaching them about the power of failure? Will you let them fail? I agree, and sometimes I am a helicopter parent because I don't want my son to hurt himself. But in terms of failing, yeah, he has to. And, you know, as long as you're there to pick him up after and tell him this happens, you know, we've all been through it. You know, I went through really tough times, and it's having that network of people around you that really helps. You know, not to blow smoke up your backside, but to tell you what you can do and to to remind you of what you've achieved in the past and how hard you've worked for this. And Formula One is, is, a, is a mental game. Pretty much every guy on the grid is super talented. Yeah. It's just if their head is in the right space. Pierre Gasly jumps in a Red Bull, gets annihilated in a Red Bull, jumps back in the Alpha Tower as it is now, and look at him. Yeah. I mean, he's outperforming so many of these top drivers on the grid because his head's in the right place. And the people around him are helping him achieve because they're putting him in that right headspace. So can you share with us some of those tips about, that you use to get yourself in that headspace to go out there and perform at your best? I was terrible at, if I had a bad weekend. I wouldn't go through the process of working out why it was bad. It would just live with me for days. And that was a big issue for me in my earlier career, sort of, uh, 2001, 2002, and that's why I struggled at Benetton so much. I had a boss like Flavio Briatore that would pick every fault and tell the world of your issues and wouldn't be there to help you through them. So I would, Sunday, bad weekend, and I would think about that race all the way up until the next race, and it, that really hurt me, and it just got worse and worse and worse. I had to really work on, and I didn't work with a specialist, which I should have done, because it took me longer to learn, but I, I had to get out of the car, sit down with my thoughts and even write it down on a piece of paper the reasons why it didn't work that day and this is just with myself not with other people the reasons why it didn't work that day and how to make this better because i know i can drive a racing car against the best in the world but i'm not performing and why is that and i had to write things down and work out the issues was it because i was staring at a tv screen before i went out for my quality lab which it was right um 
Was it because my head wasn't in the right place when it came to fitness, nutrition, working with the engineers? And I really had to work out the, the reasons for it. And I would do that straight after the race, before I've talked to anyone. Um, and that, for me, was the most important thing. Write it down, put it in my pocket. And that's, that was the quickest way for me to get over a bad weekend and, and develop my skills in the areas that I was weak. Because we all have weaknesses. And every driver, every sportsman has a weakness. Yeah. And it's, it's those areas you really need to work on. And what did it do for you when you finally got that first Formula One win? I mean, we all remember, I'm sure, that amazing image of you with your wide eyes and the visor up on your helmet. That almost looked like a kind of a disbelief or a realisation that finally the, the win has come. What did that do for your confidence and your approach to racing? You know, Formula One is, is a team sport and you can't win without a good car, you can't win without a good team, but you also can't win without a good driver. So... That weekend was a pretty emotional weekend because we had a great car that weekend in Hungary, 2006. And uh, Honda back then were very good with power output, but the reliability wasn't there. And uh, I, I was in practice, I was super quick, but we blew the engine on Saturday morning. Went into qualifying, I qualified fourth, which I'm pretty happy with. But back then you had a 10-place grid penalty for an engine failure, so I started the race 14th. Um, so coming through, in those tricky conditions and winning in that manner um, was massive for us. You know, the adrenaline, it's always exciting when you come through a field and win a race, right? And it's great to watch. And I think that just added to the excitement for the whole team. And I've never seen so many grown men cry. The Japanese were so, um, so emotional about their motor yeah. racing. And to finally get that win after so many years of trying uh, really meant a lot to them um, and also the UK based team as well but um, yeah a really special weekend and the funny thing is you celebrate and then it's forgotten so you did you not feel any different the following race did no. you not go into that with more confidence or no. more belief no not at all I think I think as a whole as a team we probably did you know we we're more confident turning up at the next race when it came to strategy and the pit stops the guys were doing there was more belief in us as a team probably uh, than us as an individual, uh, as individuals. So that was where it helped us. And if you looked at that, that point to the end of the season, we actually scored more points than Michael Schumacher, Fernando Alonso, the two guys that were fighting for the world yeah. championship. So it definitely helped us as a team have confidence to go out there and fight with the best of them. So what would you say were the biggest changes then from the you that won it in 2006 to the guy in 2001 that was struggling to process these defeats? Uh, definitely understanding motor racing you know we jump into an f1 car and think well we're i know i can drive i'm gonna i'm gonna win um but it doesn't quite work like that you know you're racing against everyone uh, all these drivers have been through the same process as you of coming through lower categories and winning so you think you're going to be the best when you get into an f1 car but you're racing against the best they're all fantastic drivers and i had kevin magnuson as a teammate back in 2014 and i remember at race three he turned around to me and said, JB, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. I thought I'd jump in and just destroy you all. Yeah. But it doesn't happen. You're racing against the best. And um, for me, it was understanding that your natural ability is, is never enough. There's always someone that has got a slightly better natural ability. It's about working on the areas, for example, the engineering, and as I was mentioning before, yeah. the fitness, the, the, the nutrition, and... and mentally feeling like you're doing more than everyone else. I think that gives you a bit of confidence as well. You know, my fitness, I always 
tried to be fitter every year I raced in F1, and I felt like I was the fittest F1 driver. Whether I was or not, I don't know. Um, nutrition, I, I always thought I was doing a better job on nutrition. With the engineering and understanding of the car, not just coming in and saying, it's understeering here, it's oversteering here, but actually understanding what I need to do with the car to make it feel better. Not just giving it to the engineers and say, here you go, sort that out, I'll come back tomorrow. So for me, that was the most important thing, understanding Formula One, really, rather than just using my natural ability to win. And how much did perception, external perception, frustrate you? Because you were doing all this, you were giving it your everything. You know, there was so much dependent upon the chassis that had been built or the engine that had been created. You're giving it everything, you're going to the nth degree to be perfect yet I remember in the early career it was like oh Jensen Button he's the playboy guy who just likes a night out he hasn't won a race yet you remember that conversation that swirled around at the time did you allow that to frustrate you did you try and get control of that because external perception impacts people too much you know it does and it started with Flavio basically saying it in Monaco I finished seventh which then was not point scoring you know, now a seventh is amazing, yeah. right, in F1. But it was seventh, and I was just outside the points. And we, our power steering failed at the start of the race. And F1 cars are pretty heavy without power steering. And I had blisters all over my hands and came in. And uh, Flavia gave an interview without talking to me and said, oh, I think he was looking for a new apartment or a new yacht to buy. That's why he finished seventh. And our hands were bleeding. Um, so that really hurt. You know, your own boss, the guy that's supposed to be nurturing you. Yeah. Um, saying that to the press and then they obviously take that on board and they run with it forever basically did you speak to Flavio and try and explain yeah, but he to wasn't him how the, that's not he helpful was, he wasn't the sort of guy you could sit down with and have an honest conversation like that so it was very tricky um, and I needed other people in the team to support me and, and they, they didn't really you know this is a team that had achieved a lot in the past with Michael Schumacher and uh, you know they thought they were the best um, yeah. this young kid who they think now is a playboy because Flavio said it um, is coming in here trying to perform and he's not doing a good enough job and, and I wasn't doing a good enough job it's because I wasn't being nurtured in the right way and I wasn't mentally strong enough so to find beyond, a way out So beyond being hurt by that comment by Flavio how else did that affect you, that perception? Yeah, it did and you know, I had a girlfriend at the time as well I had a long-term girlfriend I'd been with for three years so Playboy doesn't really fit yeah, it, it really did hurt. And I'm, you know, I'm quite an emotional character anyway. I'm not hard in any way when it comes to emotion. So I really struggled with that. And that was one of the biggest issues for me. And the best thing for me was to leave the team. And uh, I, I was told to leave the team because Fernando was coming in anyway. So it's like, okay, all right, where am I going to go? And uh, Dave Richards gave me the opportunity to go to BAR. And it was the best move of my life. That team walked in. You know, high-fiving everyone on the way in. They, was, they were really happy for me to be there. And, you know, to feel wanted was... Immediately, it was a, a complete switch for me. And uh, jumped in the car, felt great. The only person that didn't want me to be there was Jack Villeneuve, uh, my <laughs> teammate. But uh, we all know how that turned out. But uh, we yeah. ended up being good friends. But um, that was such a good step for me. And sometimes that's all it needs yeah. for a driver. It's that shift that, ch- that change in team and, and team mentality. And it's very different to most sports. You know, most sports, it's the individual and uh, it's, it's, the, it's the fitness level, it's the technical understanding of the sport. But team sports are tough. And I understand that in football, in rugby, um, sometimes you just don't click with that crowd of people you're working with. And uh, sometimes it's difficult to find that. And I found that with BER and it was great working with that team through, you know, it being BER, Honda, and then uh, on to being Braun. So what was the team where you felt you were at your happiest and therefore performed at your best? 
I mean, I had two teams that I was with for a long period of time, and probably the most happy was still BAR, um, which turned into Braun. It just felt like family to me. Um, and I, also because we went from kind of nothing, fourth place was our best finish, I think, in 2003, to winning the World Championship together and winning, you know, having our first victory together as a team. So that, for me, was probably the team that stands out as the biggest family that I've worked with. McLaren was different because I arrived there as a world champion and had won races. But still, they welcomed me like I didn't expect them to, um, as they had Lewis as, a, as the, their number one driver, if yeah. you like. So both fantastic teams to work with, very different bosses, you know, with Ron Dennis at the helm at McLaren. And uh, I really liked working with Ron. Unusual character, sometimes tricky. Yeah, you know, having a conversation with Ron one to one could be tricky. Yeah. Um, but it could be awesome as well. It could be really great, you know, getting his opinion on things. And he's been around the sport for many years. What with Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna, and, you know, trying to control those two drivers under one roof. I can't imagine how difficult it was. So it was, it was really nice working with him. But to be fair, it was more like Martin Whitmarsh that I could work with on a day to day basis and felt, you know, making the team feel, feel like my own was, yeah. was with Martin and the engineers. So why was it tricky with Ron? It's just an unusual character. If you've ever spoken to Ron, you probably know. You've probably interviewed Ron. Tried to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, on his day, Ron was great at being interviewed, but the next day it would be really difficult. So he was very passionate about Formula One. He, he wanted it to be a certain way, but it wasn't always that way, so it'd be tricky. Um, but he built this team from very small, yeah. so he, he achieved so much with McLaren, and without him it wouldn't exist. So uh, it was really sad to see him go. And after a couple of sherbets, it was always a lot of fun. A couple of lemonades. And you can hear, you know, the true stories and the great stories. The good came stories. Out. Exactly. From so you saw kind of really different cultures then as you moved through Formula 1. And we'll talk about the championship winning season in just a moment. But now that you're involved in Extreme E, you've got your own team there. You're a parent as well. Lots of CEOs listen to this podcast. What do you believe makes a healthy culture? Like, what do you want to see in, in a team that you're involved in? From both sides, I think healthy criticism is, is really important. And it's giving it and it's taking it. It's giving it in the right way, um, not putting people down. Um, and I found that in, in Extreme E because as a driver, I'm coming in and it's something that's completely different. I have no idea what I'm doing driving an Extreme E car. Yeah. So I have to be open to criticism. And that is, is key for me, being open to that positive criticism um, and, uh, and learning from it. You know, my teammate, Michaela, she is an extraordinary driver on, on track, uh, but for her it's the same. You know, driving an off-road vehicle is completely new, and I must say, I've never seen a driver learn as quickly as she has, because she studies the data, and she goes about in her own way. You know, she, she fully focuses and, and goes through the whole process of driving the vehicle. I watch her, and I think it's hilarious to watch, but she goes out there, and the next run is she's 10 times better than she was before. So I think positive criticism giving it and receiving it is, is really key. Wanting to learn, wanting to be better than you were yesterday. Um, and if you're not better the next day, you're not better, yeah. but you've tried. And that's, that's the main thing. It's putting in the effort to always want to be better than you were yesterday. And some days are gonna be dark and some days are gonna be difficult, but you've gotta realize that we've all been through that. And it's, uh, it's how you deal with that and not be afraid to ask for help in that situation. You know, and I, I wasn't that person. I, I, bottled it up inside and it really hurt my career in, in the early stages of my F1 career. So it's, it's being open to, to criticism, but also being open to asking for help. So what were the benefits then? I mean, that's a really intrig intriguing comment that you made about, about bottling up emotions or judgments. 
what was the catalyst that led you to understand that starting to ask for feedback and be open to it uh, was healthy? It was people coming to me and asking if I needed help in that situation. You know, my physio... Were you initially reticent towards that? Was, I was it was a weakness at totally, the beginning? Yeah. Totally. And I would never want to speak to a specialist and try and help me in that situation. You know, I think as, as Brits, we're not very good at asking for help either. Couples therapy, I mean, yeah. <laughs> why would you want that? We can deal with it ourselves. But you're not being told what to do as a human being. It's someone sitting there and just you're just airing your issues. They don't comment on anything. They don't... Yeah give you feedback it's more just having someone that you can just release everything and it's just such a, it's a weight off your shoulders and no I haven't been to couple counselling but just <laughs> I would I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. By the time 2009 arrived, right, this is the title winning season then, were you at that point dealing with not necessarily a psychologist, but you were, you were able to talk a lot more openly? And I wonder whether that helped because, as I mentioned to you just beforehand, I mean, my, my memory of 2009 is seeing that car so fast in Australia seeing real confidence from you and Rubens. And was it in Australia Rubens had a bit of a shunt at the beginning and the car hardly got damaged and it looked like a bulletproof Formula One car? Yeah, turn one, he had a bit of a touch. Right. He had a bad start, didn't he, and had a yeah. bit of a touch. And it was amazing, and you were just on the crest of a wave, and then, I don't know whether you have any memory of this, but Nicola was the press officer at Braun, is that right? Nicola, yeah. And I came to interview you in Italy, in the paddock, and as we were walking to the motor, and I mean, that would have been two-thirds of the way through the season, she said, look, just, just to say... It's been a half few races. His head's in a, a strange space, okay? So we'll just see how it goes. I was like, okay. And you were like, I have to say, you were the friendliest, kindest, most open, brilliant Formula One driver that any of us dealt with in our time in Formula One because you, like now, you were just you. I came in the room. You didn't even look at me. You didn't really want to do an interview, if I'm being totally honest. You gave me two-word answers, and, and it, it might have gone on the telly, but I think we just filled it with shots of you racing and the odd answer. What was going on? at that point it was difficult it was like my whole career in one season do you know what I mean through the emotions and I'd learned from those tough years but 
finally I'm in a position where I can win races, I can fight for a championship. It was a brand new team, if you like, that you didn't know where the future was going to be, so you, you had to take the opportunity to win the championship that year, yeah. which is lucky that we did. So I put so much pressure on myself, and uh, pressure that I shouldn't have put on my shoulders, because the car was good, the team were good, and I was performing well. As soon as I had one bad race, um, which was Silverstone, the first of the bad races, being at home, I wanted to have a great race in front of the home crowd, uh, circuit I loved, and it was so cold, and, and I was quite famous for not being able to get tire temperature, and I really struggled that race, and I think I finished sixth after yeah. winning the first six to seven races, uh, and that really hurt me, and it, you know, I didn't immediately ask for, for help or discuss it with anyone. It went through quite a few races, and this is when we had our bad interview, I'm sure, and then my physio, Mikey Muscles, who I'd been with for many years before that, he, while he was giving me a little rub on the, on the table, he said, JB, just talk to me. He said, just, just talk to me. Just let it all out. And it was the best thing that could have, he could have said. And, um, and I did. And I just told him how I felt. Um, Can you, know, you reveal a bit of what you said? It was just saying, you know, this, is, this could be my only chance. And I've, yeah. I've put so much pressure on myself. And every time I don't perform, whether it's in a practice lap or a qualifying lap or a lap in a race, I feel the pressure building within but then I also look at what they write because you know the, the headlines are, uh, are always tough for, uh, for a sportsman to read and nobody takes credit for the headline you know they'll take credit for the article and they'll say oh the, re- the headline wasn't me yeah, yeah. and the headlines are always the one that hit you the hardest when it's negative so I was reading way too much you know I would love it when they write positive stuff of course and I read everything and then suddenly they're writing negative stuff and I couldn't help myself from reading it and that really took its toll and being open with Mikey was really key for, to let everything out, relax and then just get on with my job. And I remember getting asked by a British journalist in Spa and I was quick in Spa but I, got, I crashed at the start of the race. It was Roman Grosjean tapped me in the rear and I crashed actually with Lewis at the yeah. time. And I came in and he said, Jensen, it's like you don't want to win this world championship. And it was just the most stupid question, the most stupid comment. And I basically just told him to leave. Yeah. Um, and, and everyone else did as well, all the other journalists. But uh, that was when it was at his lowest point. Uh, but after that, as I said, I spoke to Mikey and, and I came out feeling a lot fresher. We'd spend more time with fitness, just getting away from stuff over the race weekends, not focusing too much on looking at a timing screen over practice sessions and stuff like that. So getting away from it so I could come back and felt a lot more fresh when I jumped in the car. And, and I definitely felt it when I was racing. I felt more alive. I felt like that young kid again that just jumped into an F1 car with Williams. You know, they felt, I felt like that again. And uh, I kind of forgot about the championship and just took every race as it came. And have I remembered it right that in Brazil, when you won the world title, where did you qualify for that race? 14th. And you had to finish, what, fifth or sixth or something? Yeah, my, my teammate qualified on pole. We as a team, I'm going to say we as a team, made the wrong choice on tyres uh, in qualifying. We went on the inter and we should have been on the wet. And... Vettel did exactly the same thing because they were basically copying us and he was my closest rival really and he started 16th so we didn't have the car really that was quick enough compared to the Red Bull or the McLaren but I knew I had to finish in the top five and uh, 
Uh, it was tough because my teammate called a funnel pole. He was Brazilian. I remember going to restaurants in Brazil and them putting a ladder outside the front door, so I had to walk ah. under it to give me bad <laughs> Love luck. It. And Marginal gains. Exactly. But then didn't you turn up on that race day like, with real yeah. serenity? Yeah, I was actually, I had a pint the night before a race, which I probably wasn't supposed to do, but I had a pint in the, in the hotel bar with my dad, and I just looked at him and I said, I'm going to win the World Championship tomorrow. I have, to, I have to win the World Championship tomorrow before the last race of the season. And he just looked at me and nodded. And I uh, woke up the next day, refreshed, walked into the team, and they're like, oh, okay. And had a great race, one of the best races of my life, fighting through. And, you know, the car was obviously working well. But, uh, uh, yeah, fighting through. And all the time on the radio, it's like, where, where are we? Where's Lewis? Where's Sebastian? Where do we need to be? And having as much information as possible, how hard I should push, how brave I had to be on the moves of, you know, overtaking people. Because a lot of them were like, close calls and yeah crossing that finish line it uh it was it was a very special and emotional moment doing it that way for me it felt that race you know the highs and the lows of that race weekend was my whole career yeah. in two days <laughs> so it sounds like you discovered almost a, a winning formula to handle pressure so what tips and advice would you give to anyone listening to this about how they can handle pressure in their own lives yeah i think it's it's being open as i said not being afraid to sh show a weakness to the people around you um because they're the people that you're gonna need when times are tough surrounding yourself with good people you know i was very lucky i had my old boy i had my manager i had mikey muscles um my mates richie and chrissy who were at pretty much every race and they're racing drivers i've raced with them since i was eight so having good people around you that, you know, just to let you know what you have achieved and, and how good you are, but without, as I said, blowing smoke up, yeah. um, where the sun doesn't shine. But uh, that was really important to me, having a, a good team of people. Being alone, I would have struggled. And I know other drivers struggled like that. I know Lewis, when we were teammates, 2011, he struggled because he didn't have that yeah. team of people around me. And that, that is what helped me a lot in my career. But it also sounded like, like your answer echoed one of our previous guests was Johnny Wilkinson that spoke about he, he, he realised how much he was living in the future where, and he learned the key to it was living in the present and just focusing on the moment. How much of that was yep. consistent with you? We all look too much to the future, don't we? We're all looking at what we're going to do next. And living in the moment is key. And, and you know, there are times when we need to look at the past, um, especially when it's about achievements. But... Um, you do need to live in the moment and once the race is over as I said for me to write everything down write down my weaknesses why it didn't work for me in that situation and then go over it in my head and then put a line through it and move on and that was that was really important for me to, mm. to really live in the moment as you said um, because I was thinking too much of the past and thinking how much the past was going to hurt my future if you like and I think there's a great lesson from this whole conversation which we're nearly out of time with you know we all exist looking at other people, particularly now with the advent of social media and we imagine everyone else's life is so easy and all of us in this room would have looked at you over those years and thought, what a blessed existence. He gets up, gets on a private jet, goes to a race, races with a big smile on his face, has a drink and then goes back to his lovely apartment. And they'd be right. But yeah, but <laughs> they don't take into account yeah. the writing things down, the struggles, the failures. I know yeah. you had anxiety attacks at times yeah. during your career as yeah. well. This is a great reminder for everyone, just don't assume everyone else is just living that life of serenity. Yeah, I mean, what you see on TV is, is what you try and portray as an individual. And I always wanted to be the smiley guy because that's what I should be, right? I'm driving an F1 car, it's the best job in the world. And it was, but it comes with an immense amount of pressure. One that you put yourself, you put yourself under a lot of pressure, but the team does, the, 
journalists, mm. everyone. You know, every slip-up is on TV for the world to see. And, you know, having your life under a microscope is, is really tough. And you didn't get into motorsport wanting that. You didn't want to be a celebrity. You wanted to be a sportsman and achieve in Formula One. It's not like a, a singer or an actor that needs the public behind them to, to actually achieve in this sport. Yeah. You know, we love having support because it's amazing. But um, when they write negatives about you, it's, it's really, really tough and it does get you down. And I understand a lot of drivers have been through the same. And I would say have a, someone on, at every race with you that you can sit down and talk to face to face, even if they're not saying anything, it's just getting it out. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think drivers these days should have that support. And I, looking back, I would have. But uh, I, was, I thought I was too much of a man to have support and... Uh, you do at this level of uh, the pinnacle of any sport, you need that, that support. It's great advice. Um, and now you're in this world, which is very different. You've got two children. Um, you're doing all kinds of different exciting projects, including working with Lotus and Legere as well. What do you do now to, to kind of keep that adrenaline going? Like what, what, what gets you out of bed in the mornings these days? That's a very good question. And, you know, when I stopped racing in F1, I raced in Japan for a couple of years, which is great. And then I stopped racing in Japan. And for six months, it was like, oh, this is nice. You know, relaxing and, oh, we're having children now. <laughs> it's going to be really hectic. But uh, I, I kind of struggled with what am I going to do next? Something that was going to give me that adrenaline, that excitement to, you know, to build something, really. And I struggled. You know, I, I was working with sponsors, which was great. And obviously working with, you know, TV, Sky Sports. Uh, but I didn't have that thing to sink my teeth into that I could really make a big change. Um, and then I spoke to a good friend, Ant Anstead, and Mark Stubbs, who's a car designer. And we came up with the idea to take over um, Radford Coach Building. And uh, that's what I've been doing the last year or so, working with those guys, working on a TV series, but also working on developing these wonderful coach-built cars. Uh, and I'm basically the drive part of it. I'm the test driver, so I'm building something that I... W would love to drive every day and I think if I can do that if I can develop something that works for me I think it works for everyone mm. that was my big strength really in motor racing is developing a car that would really work for me so I'm loving it it's such a fun project and we're working with Lotus on, on the first car they've been fantastic you know working with our engineers and using their chassis uh, to develop our, our coach built body for it and uh, interior and what have you so it's awesome. And we're, we're announcing our first car later this year, or, or launching our first car later this year, which, uh, which should be fun. But along with that, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot going on. Uh, working with Lotus also with our um, cycle brand, Legere, and also building bikes together. Um, Extreme E. So you're busy. Yeah, Extreme E. Uh, working with Lotus again, with uh, Lotus Engineering on, on, on you know, learning a lot about uh, electric vehicles and how we can develop it for the future. Uh, and the Extreme E team's doing really well. Much better when I'm not driving it, I find. Uh, so I've got to decide at the next race what I'm going to do. But uh, great team of people, um, and we're third in the championship. Funnily enough, behind one ex-F1 world champion and behind the current F1 world champion. So, yeah, Lewis's team is uh, second in the championship, I think, and Nico's team is first. So... Yes. Keep on their tail. Yes. Listen, we always end with some quickfire questions on the High Performance Podcast. And the first one is, for you and the teams that you're building and the projects you're involved in now, what would you say are the three non-negotiable behaviours that people have to bring to the table based on all the years of experience that we've just spent the time talking about? Yeah, I think what we've, what we've mentioned already. One is, you know, wanting to learn, wanting to be a better you. Yeah. I think taking on positive criticism 
is really key. And doing something you, you love, yeah. you know. I mean, we don't all have that opportunity. I know that in life. But if you do get the opportunity to go after something you love, it's going to be the best you. So what advice would you give to a teenage Jensen just starting out? It's the same thing, really. You know, it's, it's being very open, listening to all the, the, everything that comes at you from, from all the greats from around the world. You know, through my career, there were so many great F1 drivers that came to me and give, gave me their opinion on, on not just my driving, but who I should be working with in F1 and, uh, and also the, the experiences that they went through. And they said, you're probably going to go through this emotion one day. I'm like, nah, it's... I'm not going to go through that. It's never going to be hard, but it happens to all of us. So take it on board. You know, take all the information from these greats on board. Uh, whatever it is, whatever you do as a job, someone has been through it before you. So take it all on board. And talking of taking things on board, what would you recommend as either a book or a podcast or something for people to listen to that has spoken to you? One for me was because um, I love triathlons as well. Yeah. You know, love Ironman and, and the mental game of, a, of an Ironman. Because, you know, it's, it's an endurance sport. Physical is important, but it's also what your head goes through, through those eight hours of an Ironman. Yeah. So for me, Iron War is a great book. Um, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, two of the greatest uh, triathletes in the world at that moment. This is, this is a long time. It's a few decades ago now. Yeah. Um, but they, they were coming. They'd been racing on the swim, the bike, head-to-head -head the whole way. But the run was the one that was filmed. And they're in, they're in shot pretty much the whole run running side by side and one would take one bigger step than the other and you just see the mental game with them it's hurting the pain on their faces but they're not giving up because the other guy is next to them and ha has pushed on that little bit more and they're trying to hide the pain yeah. so the other guy can't see it. it but it's coming through and uh, it's, it is just it's just awesome to watch that fight between two greats and you know the emotion, the physical stress, the mental stress that they're, they're going through at that moment in time. And it's, uh, I mean, I've seen it on YouTube, but also, you know, you can, uh, you can read the book. So what's your greatest strength and your greatest weakness? My greatest weakness was that I wasn't willing to move on from a bad weekend. But I, I feel that I, I've definitely got over that. One thing that I, I've not been able to get over is driving a bad car. You know, that's, one, that's my weakness. You know, Lewis, Fernando Alonso can, can jump in a bad car and, and, and get more out of it than I can. That's probably my weakness. Strength is the, the way I drive is very different to most. For example, Lewis comes into a corner. It's great because I have all the speed traces and everything from the data of when we were teammates. But hammers the brake, you know, as hard as he can. There's no modulation. Turns into the corner goes on the throttle, the same uh, amount of pressure every time, it's linear, and he does everything through the steering wheel. Um, whereas I was the complete opposite. I would brake and modulate it, well, that's to stop front locking, um, and I would come on the throttle and modulate the throttle so that I didn't have to change my steering angle. So I'd be smooth in the steering, they'd say, oh, it looks so smooth, it's just because that's what I would use, very differently than someone like Lewis. That hurt me in some ways, but it helped me in those mixed conditions, really feel the condition underneath me. So modulating the brake, when you come into braking, you're not going to be locking up as much. You don't want steering angle in the wax. It's very easy to lose the rear, and modulating the throttle is key as well, because yeah. it controls that. And you know, I feel that I felt the car through my bum uh, a lot more than others. Uh, a lot of people would see it's wet and drive to what they see, whereas I would drive to what I felt. And uh, that's where my strength was in those mixed conditions. And half my victories were in, in F1 were in mixed conditions. So I'm not saying I like those conditions. No one likes it, but I just did better than others. So. 
Very good. And look, the final question, really, and it's kind of a last message from you to the listeners of the podcast. What is your one golden rule, your one message you'd like to leave with them that you've learned over the years for living a high-performance life? It's going to be bloody hard. <laughs> really but that's not is. a bad thing. What's hard no, isn't necessarily bad, no, right? it isn't. You're going to have a lot of failures before you actually achieve. And, uh, but it's embracing those failures. And, and, and we all say it, but learning from those failures. But... Um, it's difficult. It really is difficult getting over those failures, but it's, it's learning to get over those failures. That's what's going to make you a great champion. Brilliant. Look, thank you so much for your time and for your honesty. And despite the fact you talk about all those moments of failure, I can honestly say that when I was involved in F1, you were so kind of open and honest with people and you managed to sort of carry yourself in such a dignified way. And I'm sure it was a lot to do with the people that were around you, but it's a testament to the Thank kind you. of person you well, are as well. You were there from when we won the World Championship. Yeah. When we were giving you a big hug in the, uh, in oh, the garage. Oh, in the garage. That was, was amazing. It was hectic, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, there wasn't an inch between everyone in the garage. It was Just, madness. Because it was deadly quiet. And then all the snappers came in and then you came in a moment afterwards. And just to... That, that, you had a kind of a thousand yard stare I mean I guess it was just like this moment had arrived and it had happened for you but obviously it was a, a pleasure to share that and it's a pleasure to see you today and to catch up so thank you very much ladies and gentlemen Formula 1 world champion Jensen Button thank you Cheers, guys. Damien Jake before we talk about Jensen and what we made of what he had to say how did you find doing that episode in front of a live audience I thought it was really interesting. I, I, I felt nervous beforehand because I was, I think sometimes, I think it's the intimacy of us being together with somebody in the room, just ourselves, that sometimes allows them to open up a little bit more and maybe feel um, safe enough to be vulnerable. So I was concerned that, that with people being there, it might inhibit Jensen in terms of what he revealed. But... I actually think it worked in our favour that I think people, I think because he knew there was people listening to him, I think it meant that he gave more than what he might have done if it had just been the two of us. But what about yourself? Well, it's convinced me we need to be taking high performance on the road. Yeah, I do thought... people will turn up? If we, if we do a tour, <laughs> will people turn up, do you think? Well, I'll ask my mum. She'll come. I'm sure your <laughs> mum and dad might make it. Can you imagine? Evening, Mr. and Mrs. Hughes. Hi, Mr. and Mrs. Humphrey. Welcome to the Apollo in London. Uh, don't worry about the 17,198 empty seats. <laughs> no, I did. I really enjoyed it. I, I, I feel the same as you. I think that with the right guest who enjoys, because um, he enjoys playing to the crowd as well, Jensen. He's, a, he's an entertainer. So I think it worked in that, in that instance, actually. And I, obviously, I know him. Um, and I know, like when, when we first spoke about him being on the podcast... To be honest, I was a little bit reticent because I know that that isn't a natural place for him to go. The mindset, the, the thought process behind what he did. He was one of the nicest guys to spend time with in Formula One. But like a lot of athletes, there was always a bit of a barrier to protect himself rather than any sort of yeah. egocentric type of thing. It was just to put himself mentally where he needed to be to perform. And I, so I think that the sort of few years he's had out of Formula One has perhaps just made him a little bit more centered. He's a dad now. He's, yep. I think he's getting married. He's living in America. So I, I sort of feel I know more about Jensen Button than I did from the four years I spent following him in every race. I think for a lot of our guests sometimes, I think parenthood can have that effect on them because you're starting to think about what you're going to hand down uh, to your own children after it. So yeah, I, I hadn't considered that, but maybe that was a, an impact in the way that he did uh, come towards uh, the interview. Mm. 
And did you like what he had to say? Yeah, I loved it. I loved, again, I loved the idea of uh, challenging um, preconceptions that we have. So when he told the story about uh, Flavio Biatori labelling him as a playboy, and then when he spoke about how hurtful that was because of how hard he was working and how disciplined his lifestyle was, again, it was just a good reminder that sometimes we need to look beyond the cover of a book rather than just making sweeping easy judgments. Yeah, and I think the other thing is it's another reminder of how being a high-level professional sports person is so exposing and and that is a real challenge for some people. And he readily said on the podcast, didn't he, you know, I didn't have the talent that other people had, but I, I managed to work really hard. And I think that's the sort of thing that you can't say publicly when you're in the midst of a title battle or you're competing yeah. at the very top. Again, it's only with that benefit of hindsight you can step back and give yourself the credit for the work that you did do. But, you know, he's a world champion, baby. Yeah. Like, that's a, that is a, that's a hell of a legacy right there, isn't it? So for him to take the time to talk to us and for the crowd to come and really respond to it as well. And, you know, they were excited to watch a high-performance podcast record as well. So all in all, I found it a sort of really enjoyable experience, but a really different experience to the kind of thing that, that we've done before. Yeah, but again, I think it'd be nice that um, like we didn't have the opportunity to do it on the day, but if we were to do live events where people can ask questions themselves as well and maybe come at uh, some of these interviews from a different perspective than what we're bringing as well, I think there'd be so much value from it. I totally agree. Things are getting exciting regarding the High Performance book, by the way. Before we sign off from this episode, we should just remind people that we have written a book. So... I've not really been through this process like this before. It's quite cool, isn't it, when you get an email, Damien, and the book in exactly how it's going to look for people is on that email. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's exciting. I know, and it'll be even more exciting when we actually get it, um, like a, a tangible copy in our hands. Um, we've got the audio book coming up as well that we've got to get the record dates in, but for anyone that prefers uh, reading their books or having the books read to them, I should say, uh, we, uh, that'll also be available and people can pre-order that now too brilliant how do what are we can do like word for word or page for page what do you reckon <laughs> how are we going to work this how are we going to work this out <laughs> i think um yeah i think can, we'll can you, can, you do all the lo- can you do all the long words <laughs> yeah anything that's slightly technical <laughs> or scientific or f- psychological based can you you take those words i'll do the ands and the its and, and stuff like that <laughs> i think you understand <laughs> yourself on it jake i think i think ah, some of your um stories that you share in it as well especially from your own career uh, i think people will love them i think again it'll give them a real insight into the craft that you do and some of the and and some of your journey as well well, I hope that people enjoy it for all kinds of different reasons. And um, you can pre-order the book right now. If you take a look at the description for this podcast, you will find the link right there. You can also pre-order it at thehighperformancepodcast.com. You can actually get your hands on signed copies already as part of the pre-order. And the book is out on the 9th of December. Right, Damien, I'm well aware that we're um, interrupting a family holiday for you to hop on this record and talk about JB. So I will let you go. Thanks, Back mate. to the beach, back to the family, back to the holiday, because as you've told us many times, races are one in a pit stop recreation is another way of saying recreation so go and enjoy your recreation and i'll see you soon ah thanks mate and thanks again for having us along on the episode i love this one so uh i'll see you soon
Top man. Thanks, Damien. Um, and I'm sure you at home will join me in saying thanks to Damien for everything that he brings to the High Performance Podcast. Also to Hannah, Will, Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio and all the team involved in trying to make this podcast as engaging and interesting as we can for you. Um, as always, thank you most of all, though, for being part of it. A quick reminder that you can join the High Performance Circle at thehighperformancepodcast.com you can pre-order the book you can find us on YouTube and Instagram but however you do it as we come to the end of this series actually just keep engaged with what we're doing keep on coming for more content and we'll keep on doing everything we can to change your mindset and equip you with the tools you need to live the life that you want have a great day